watching or listening to media coverage that you perceive as upsetting. Need help and support? Please contact us at the hotline 311 Psychosocial Support at 722-6575 or 518-4157. Brought to you by PAHO, the OECS Commission and UNICEF. The opinions expressed on this TV program by the host, co-host, guest, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions and responsibility of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of UTV or its affiliates. Nothing is running. Things aren't even walking. Things are moving in reverse. Um, I know it must be hard on people. But thank you for locking in. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you for all the love and support that I have gotten so far. Um, you never expect it. You never believe that it's owed to you. But it is so seriously appreciated. And if I don't appear humble, I'm doing something wrong because I would have, ne would have never known or guessed. Folks, it is June 19th, 2020, and this is the revolution. And the revolution is not just the show. It's what's happening now. It's what started to happen officially as of Sunday, the 14th of July, of June, sorry. And it is what is going to need to continue to happen and to grow. Because the minds must be liberated. Not because of me or through me. I'm no prophet. Not because of any politician. Not even because of any particular book. It's going to be because of all of us having an attitudinal change towards social consciousness and consciousness on the whole, generally. How we learn, how we process information. Now folks, we have a lot to get through today. But I wanted to start in an area which, like I said, has become delicate, is troubling, concerning, important has been handled indelicately in recent times, reveals a lot of mindsets, causes a lot of confusion, but is part of who we are, who we want to be, um, is yet to be determined. But I'm speaking about race relations. And in doing the research, something absolutely struck me. In the same way that when I was a boy, smoking, Cigarettes at five years old, like all I thought about was I have asthma, so I could never be like one of these people that smoked cigarettes because smoking was so popular. Guys put their matches in a matchbox in their shirt sleeve. Everywhere you went, people were smoking. It was so popular. And I'm not saying there aren't countries like in the UK, in England, where people still aren't smoking heavily, or Canada, you see people outside and they're smoking and so on. But for the most part, St. Lucia has, like many parts of the world, sort of tamped down on cigarette smoking. It is established as a fact it causes cancer and all the rest of that. So that said, 
But you, at the time, you didn't think about it that way. You just thought it was cool. And that's the basis of marketing, which has now become mind-bending. Now, I say all of that because it never occurred to me that the entire premise of racism was actually a marketing, marketed concept. I never, it never, I mean, I just thought there was always racism. I always, and there probably has always been racism. But whereas people may individually in their own cognitive biases think, like, you know, for example, I remember the first time, and it's an, it's an instinctive bias, any which way, I went to Canada, and an Asian guy, Asian-Canadian guy came up and he's like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? Just the fact that a guy was coming up to me with an Asian appearance and speaking with a Canadian accent, I had culture shock. Now, I had my implicit bias. It doesn't make me racist, but the point is we get, you get where I'm going with this. With regard to racism, the fact or the thought that it was actually a systematic thing, something that people were programmed into believing, something that was marketed, just like you campaign, whether it's for Obama or for Trump, or you're selling Coca-Cola, or you're selling a Samsung cell phone as opposed to an Apple iPhone, that literally racism was actually something that was campaigned into existence and introduced and injected into our belief system on all sides. Slavery, the treatment of human beings as property, deprived of personal rights, has occurred in many forms throughout the world. But one institution stands out for both its global scale and its lasting legacy. The Atlantic slave trade, occurring from the late 15th to the mid-19th century and spanning three continents, forcibly brought more than 10 million Africans to the Americas. The impact it would leave affected not only these slaves and their descendants, but the economies and histories of large parts of the world. There had been centuries of contact between Europe and Africa via the Mediterranean, but the Atlantic slave trade began in the late 1400s with Portuguese colonies in West Africa and Spanish settlement of the Americas shortly after. The crops grown in the new colonies, sugarcane, tobacco, and cotton, were labor-intensive, and there were not enough settlers or indentured servants to cultivate all the new land. American natives were enslaved, but many died from new diseases, while others effectively resisted. And so, to meet the massive demand for labor, the Europeans looked to Africa. African slavery had existed for centuries in various forms. Some slaves were indentured servants, with a limited term and the chance to buy one's freedom. Others were more like European serfs. In some societies, slaves could be part of a master's family, own land, and even rise to positions of power. But when white captains came offering manufactured goods, weapons, and rum for slaves, African kings and merchants had little reason to hesitate. They viewed the people they sold not as fellow Africans, but criminals, debtors, or prisoners of war from rival tribes. By selling them, kings enriched their own realms and strengthened them against neighboring enemies. African kingdoms prospered from the slave trade, but meeting the Europeans' massive demand created intense competition. Slavery replaced other criminal sentences, and capturing slaves became a motivation for war rather than its result. To defend themselves from slave raids, neighboring kingdoms needed European firearms, which they also bought with slaves. The slave trade had become an arms race, altering societies and economies across the continent. 
As for the slaves themselves, they faced unimaginable brutality. After being marched to slave forts on the coast, shaved to prevent lice, and branded, they were loaded onto ships bound for the Americas. About 20% of them would never see land again. Most captains of the day were tight packers, cramming as many men as possible below deck. While the lack of sanitation caused many to die of disease and others were thrown overboard for being sick or as discipline, the captains ensured their profits by cutting off slaves' ears as proof of purchase. Some captives took matters into their own hands. Many inland Africans had never seen whites before and thought them to be cannibals, constantly taking people away and returning for more. Afraid of being eaten or just to avoid further suffering, they committed suicide or starved themselves, believing that in death their souls would return home. Those who survived were completely dehumanized, treated as mere cargo. Women and children were kept above deck and abused by the crew, while the men were made to perform dances in order to keep them exercised and curb rebellion. What happened to those Africans who reached the New World and how the legacy of slavery still affects their descendants today is fairly well known. But what is not often discussed is the effect that the Atlantic slave trade had on Africa's future. Not only did the continent lose tens of millions of its able-bodied population, but because most of the slaves taken were men, the long-term demographic effect was even greater. When the slave trade was finally outlawed in the Americas and Europe, the African kingdoms whose economies it had come to dominate collapsed, leaving them open to conquest and colonization. And the increased competition and influx of European weapons fueled warfare and instability that continues to this day. The Atlantic slave trade also contributed to the development of racist ideology. Most African slavery had no deeper reason than legal punishment or intertribal warfare, but the Europeans who preached a universal religion and who had long ago outlawed enslaving fellow Christians, needed justification for a practice so obviously at odds with their ideals of equality. So they claimed that Africans were biologically inferior and destined to be slaves, making great efforts to justify this theory. Thus, slavery in Europe and the Americas acquired a racial basis, making it impossible for slaves and their future descendants to attain equal status in society. In all of these ways, the Atlantic slave trade was an injustice on a massive scale, whose impact has continued long after its abolition. So you see, when you even hear people like Rick Wayne and so on trying to say that the Prime Minister just spoke inartfully, and they, what he was saying actually makes sense, the truth is nothing could be further from the truth than that. Because economics is literally the mathematics of, human, of resource management, whether it is your land, whether it is your people, whether it is your minerals, whatever, but resource management, education, um, police, money, that's what economics is. But to say that colonialism had a conscience, think of the lengths that they went through, that up to this day, we are still talking about racism, when racism, for all intents and purposes, was actually conceived and marketed in order to facilitate a business arrangement of getting free, cheap labor that could be exploited. So just think to yourself that instinctively, human beings 
were not racist, but it was marketed and promoted to the point where, for all intents and purposes, you have Trump now, who is a racist. I mean, it's obvious. When he's doing something that has to do with black people, like passing a law, it's like he makes sure to show the body language so that his redneck base knows that he's just doing something because he has to. But whenever it comes to defending, like the rednecks that come in and say white power or whatever, he'll come like in Charlotte and he say, oh, these white racists are good people. Right? And the fact of the matter is that just like there are black people who think of themselves that way as being inferior, white people, and the whole debate has gone. But just think about it. It's the same marketing campaign that could come from Coca-Cola, General Electric. It could come from Dell Computers. It could come from a TV station or radio station. It's not as simple as saying, hey, our radio station is the best, right? It's more insidious than that. But the bottom line is still the same. That racism was actually marketed as a concept because Christianity long since got rid of slavery for fellow Christians, But instead, you even have things like, for example, a slave Bible, where they took out um, chapters that spoke about insurrection, about Moses and let my people go. It's very, very interesting because if we're still having that type of stuff coming from our leaders today, then it means that we haven't come as far as you think we have. And for the surrogates to be spinning and defending this up to last night also tells you that we really and truly have a long way to go. That said, let's listen to Alison Jha, mother of the now deceased Botham Jha, as she speaks about Donald Trump. Amidst the current national outcry in America, President Donald Trump signed an executive order on Tuesday, which introduces several policing reforms. Alison Jha says while she listened to Trump's address, what caught her attention was the president's reference to the idea that proper training might have prevented a number of tragic deaths. In that instance, Trump made specific mention of her son Botham Jha, who was killed by a Dallas police officer in September of 2018. That this was confirmation by the commander-in-chief of the United States of America that the issue that we raised in our civil suit was really correct. He actually endorsed because we've been saying from day one that it was as a result of improper training or inadequate training of Amber Geiger which caused her not to utilize the training that she would have gotten in the past that of de-escalation, and that was what caused the death of my son. So for me, that is a big win. In December of 2019, a judge ruled that the city of Dallas should not be a party to the civil suit as Amber Geiger was deemed to be off-duty when she shot Botham Jha. However, the Jha family has highlighted that during the criminal trial, which concluded in October of 2019, the world heard a different story. We heard that based on the standing orders, a police officer is never off duty. And by Amber Geiger's very conduct, she was in her police uniform, she issued verbal commands, she used her service weapon, She had her police equipment on her. All of that showed that Amber Geiger was a police officer on duty at the time when she shot my son. 
Je noted that in the wake of the shooting, Amber Geiger received certain courtesies from fellow police officers, which many viewed as attempts to protect her. The Je family attorneys have since filed a motion for reconsideration, which notes the discrepancies that were highlighted during the criminal trial. The family is currently awaiting a response from the judge. Since Trump's address, he has come under fire for not explicitly addressing the relationship between race and police brutality in the United States. I wondered how Alison Je felt about the president's refusal to confront this stark reality. I don't expect Donald Trump to come and speak on race. We've seen Donald Trump before. We've heard what Donald Trump has to say about, about black people. We've heard what Donald Trump has to say about people who come from countries that are outside of America. And so I don't expect him to just rebaptize or, 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 or get a, a baptism now that will cause him to speak about race. Donald Trump will still be Donald Trump. The other thing too, I am fully aware that elections is down the road in November of this year and Donald Trump would try anything to regain office. So my family and my daughter attended uh, and met with Donald Trump yesterday, but we are not going to believe that overnight Donald Trump has, is, is here to embrace everyone, red and yellow, black and white. I don't believe that that is possible. He may have used this as a political stunt, that's up to him. But it's left to black people to read between the lines. So that's where we are at today. If we're going to chart a, a way forward, just like if you have a ship sailing on the ocean, if you had to do all of the geometry, you need first, before you can even say where you want to go, you must establish consensus on a point of origin. And I thought in the wake, and I must send my condolences on behalf of my family, my father, my mother, to the Foster family in the, in the passing of Kenneth Foster, known not just as a brilliant mind in terms of law, but in the same way that people look at people like Derek Walcott and Hunter Francois as certifiable genius, in the same way so too was Kenneth Foster regarded by not only his peers, but by even regional and um, international people as being a brilliant mind. And I thought it's so insightful, I thought Rick also touched on it, that his, what I guess, granddaughter, family, um, also wrote something that's very insightful. And I'm so heartened because I think so many of the today's present, um, if you want to call them thinkers, authors, and minds, are not as attuned as they should be. And I want to go now to Tiana Foster and read what she posted. Amidst the amplification of the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been a lot of talk within the Caribbean community that what we, what we do not have, that we do not have an issue with racism within the islands, rather that we have an issue with classism. I feel compelled to correct this very wrong assertion because what we have is much worse. We have a combination of these two. What this means is that we are is that there are black men and women and people of color who have attained status, the status of a financial superiority, sorry, and that has placed them in a class above their fellow black man. And for this reason, they feel that they are above the move, this movement. 
that they are disconnected and do not need to be involved. And even worse, they engage in racist jokes and belittling that allows these stereotypes to be cemented and the social injustice and for the social injustices to be perpetuated. And even worse is their failure to acknowledge their fault because they believe that they are black and could not possibly be racist against black people. I think that is brilliant. I think that is insightful, and I can definitely say that the gene pool has passed down in the brilliance of um, Kenneth Foster, for sure. I think that's spot on, and that is, sorry to say, exactly what I mean in a different way when I talk about the house slave mentality of people who believe that, for example, all the public servants who are getting shafted right now. You don't think that there's people who are public servants who are helping to shaft the rest of the public servants when they know everything that's been done, money wasted on Fresh Start, money wasted on Ernst & Young, money blown on Ojo Labs, money blown on, on, on Mangal, all of these different projects are crap, DSH. Look, now I see DSH now carving out the back of behind the George Odlum Stadium. Now, Tewa King is selling land lots, right? And at the same time, there are public servants, senior public servants, who will look and know it's supposed to be all for one and one for all. And yet they are working assiduously to help Shastney disenfranchise and marginalize the rest of the public service. To me, that's a house slave mentality. I'm sorry, that's the only way I can put it. But you know what? For those who will come with the counter stuff, I still go back to the people that make the best argument. So I don't know if you know of this guy, but if you don't, you really need to get to know him. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land on nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate. And therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstrap. So, where's the legacy? With the Indian culture, they managed to preserve and protect their culture, and they had a business acumen. With the... Anglo-European, Caucasians, whether they were British or French that settled here. The land claims were always respected, whether we were seven times British or seven times French. So they had land, they had assets to an extent. Then you turn and you say, well, okay, why, what has happened with regard to St. Lucia? Like it or not, 
No matter how many buildings we built, no matter how many schools we built, no matter what has happened, the only program that has ever even sought to address something like this is Kenny Anthony's proud program to rationalize us land so that squatters who had been on for generations could earth could own the land take that land and use it to start as leverage to you know improve their home or start a business or send their children to school so that when you look at a place like bruceville formerly manhattan and people can look at that that is extremely valuable property that's why people like carrot and them want to get everybody out of there and he have land there and let chastney take all of it and then the, this family real estate company will take that and sub point holdings and point sub this and that and the other that's the point we have been disenfranchising ourselves and each other but there is a way forward and the first thing that we have to do is to acknowledge where we're at so that we know where we want to go but for for lack of a better way to put it we can't see through or past the red or yellow glasses to see when something is just damn well inappropriate and more importantly speaks to the mentality of the man there is nothing in st lucia that is not colonial nothing your most educated people and you're not so well educated people their education is colonial your textbooks colonial the people who go and get their law degrees in england colonial the laws that you have in this country that you live by colonial the parliament you were given colonial think about it so when you're busy hating white people or spreading hate against white people or spreading hate against colonials etc and then you have to beg from them the same colonials you have to beg for them for aid you have to beg for them from for for for, for, for medicine you have to beg for them from hopefully a vaccine you depend on them for tourism you know the horror derek walker wrote in effect that among the worst things we can do as a people is to bury ourselves in this whole slavery thing. We are not supposed to forget our ancestors were slaves. We're not supposed to forget that. But the stories we talk about racism and, 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 and the slaves, they're not ours. They're all written by the very people we hate. So we're taking their records of what happened in slavery powder it up to suit ourselves and spread the gospel. Whereas people like the Jews and other people who have been subjugated, and the Jews in particular, the Jews don't ever want anybody to not to have heard of the Holocaust. But you're not going to find pictures of Hitler in any museum in Israel. It belongs in the history books. It belongs in our textbooks. But we have no goddamn textbooks. We don't even know about Derek Walcott. We don't know about Arthur Lewis. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. We know nothing of ourselves. And I, sh I, sh I, should, I, I wrote some, uh, some little pieces here. Just to remind you. You take your pick, the one you like best. The most effective way to destroy a people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of the history of their history to be honest with you sometimes i say we we you know slavery has been abolished since 1834 but a lot of us are still caught you know with the mental slavery here we are 
I'm a slave master. You my slaves. I spent a hundred years beating up on you, your grandmama, your great grandmama, mm. making you work for nothing for me. Centuries after centuries. And then one day independence must come. That's okay, fine, let's have independence. Let's sit down and talk about it. Here's how your independence gonna go, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you. And now, independence is signed, we all happy, we shake hands. How sweet. All the land that I took from your family remains my land, of course. And now you out in the street begging. You know what I'm going to say? Look at this bum. What is wrong with him? These black folks can't do nothing for themselves. Here he is begging, begging, always begging. And we are so stupid. We won't even say, yeah. I'm begging because you stole my land. See COVID-19 now speeding up what we've been working on for so long to have the SIDS um, classified differently so we can access those funds? Well, we're certainly not allowing this crisis to go unnoticed and reiterating once more um, the impracticality of the economic global economic architecture as it pertains to um, small island developing states. So in simpler terms, um, the laws that define how these international institutions work with the small island developing states has to change. And so I think that we're all of one singular voice. But I think that the idea of constantly going, and I'm sorry to put it this way, because it, it's not begging, but it comes across as begging, where we go on an individual basis and saying, we're a small island developing state, we're vulnerable, and then you owe it to me. The world doesn't work like that. The world doesn't have, economics has no conscience. That's why I keep saying to everybody, you know, colonialization had a conscience in that ultimately there was a person making the decision. Economics has no conscience. You know, when it was time for Pan American to go, it went. Economics is about people. Economics is about improving the quality and the standard of living for the people of, of, of the country. That's what, that's what it is. And economics, Mr. Prime Minister, does have a conscience. Have you heard about the welfare states? Have you heard about social safety nets? Have you heard about transfer of incomes? Have you heard about transfer of technology? Have you heard of stimulus projects? Economics has no conscience. That's why I keep saying to everybody, you know, colonialization had a conscience in that ultimately there was a person making the decision. Economics has no conscience. A massa mentality. That's why I keep saying to everybody, you know, colonialization had a conscience in that ultimately there was a person making the decision. Colonialization had a conscience. When you, when you look at the issue, um, I think my prime minister was attempting to lead to, if I understand what he was saying, is that... There were people there, you know, there were people there, people, human beings who had a heart, who had a conscience. When Alan Shastin made his statement, I got to tell you, I'm going to say straight out, if I were Alan Shastin, I'm a politician, I know my environment, I'd be a lot more careful 
how I say things. This is an Afrocentric nation. This is an island within the Caribbean. And comments are being made about colonialism having a conscience and slavery. And I'm telling you, these comments, we deserve an apology. A leader of an Afrocentric nation should not and cannot be allowed to make these statements. And if he explained it badly, we should give him an opportunity to come back, we'll and come again, and come and explain it to us. Because it deals with a, a very dark side. When you make reference to slavery, and I think Dr. King did a very, an excellent job of making reference to it. When you speak to people and tell us that col colonialism had a conscience, etc., and slavery, when you make reference like that, I think you are insulting St. Lucians, and we deserve an apology. So I can't tell everybody where to start. I can't tell everybody what to believe. I can only tell you where I am at right now. A nice little reminder, because there's something to be learned in every situation, that you should probably start by thinking of the lowest common denominator. We, as a race, black people, even if I'm a shabbeen, right, have to make sure that we protect our humanity. We have to make sure that since we are the only race of people that ever had to prove that they were human beings because the marketing of racism said that we were three-fifths human. I don't know what the, other, what the rest of it was supposed to be. But that said, that we now have to make sure that we maintain our humanity towards each other. So who are the lowest, the dregs of society? Even below the poor and marginalized. The criminals, right? Or the perceived criminals. Or the people that are in the jails. And again, I would give the former administration of Kenny Anthony credit for building the bodily prison facility. Many, many probably didn't see it as a priority. But thankful now because it is a decent place of a decent standard of living and humane place in terms of the, how it's set up. But I just want to take you to thinking that right now as we speak, I could, would, and should have been, um, for left to some people, I would have been at Custody Suites. And I want you to imagine that Custody Suites did not have water for a month. Think of toilets overflowing with 10, 12 different logs of shit. <laughs> Pee dried up on the floors. And look, it's not the fault of the police or the, whoever the janitors and the custodians were. They tried to keep it as clean as possible, but there's no beds. The mats that you sleep on or whatever have other people's hair, sweat, dirt. I mean, I'll let you see cell number five, and I'm happy somebody got the pictures of it cleaned up just so that you can see. And I'm thinking, in all of this talk about slavery, the one excuse that we don't have, whether we're black, white, Indian, Syrian, or whatever, nobody can tell me that you cannot put up some better conditions to this so that people who have not even been determined whether they are guilty or innocent but are in a holding cell can, I don't know, you know, be in a better position or better situation than this.
talk about physical distancing, why we need it, and what does it mean. Physical distancing is deliberately increasing the physical space between people to avoid the spreading of an infectious illness. In this case, the new coronavirus, also known as COVID-19. <laughs> this virus spreads from person to person through a sneeze or a cough or even through talking. The droplets from a sneeze, cough or loud speech float through the air before settling on surfaces like your countertops, tables, doorknobs, keys or your mobile phones. It can even be breathed in if you are close enough to a person who has the virus. The virus then waits for an opportunity to be passed on to the next person you come into contact with. Staying six feet away from others is the best distance to avoid any spread of the virus from one person to the next. If you're waiting in line at the supermarket or the bank, follow the markers set on the floor to try to visualize a six-foot distance from the person in front of you and wait there, even outside of the building. Why? Well, if everyone practices physical distancing, we can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 as the chances of passing it on to another person is reduced. Physical distancing also means that we do the following. Avoid contact with someone who is displaying symptoms of COVID-19. These symptoms include cough, sneeze, sore throat and fever. Avoid the unnecessary use of public transportation as you should be going out only when required. If unavoidable, travel with less people. Work from home wherever possible. Avoid social gatherings at bars, restaurants, as well as going to fests and casual lines as the infection spreads easily when people gather together. Since you should not be gathering with friends and family, you can still remain in touch by giving a call, connecting online or through social media. Unless it is absolutely necessary, you should not be visiting older relatives as they are one of the groups most vulnerable to COVID-19. <laughs> By these simple actions, we can all make a big impact to reduce the spread of COVID-19 on our St. Lucia. Welcome back to the revolution. Folks, I am in a situation where as much as I would like to speak totally candidly, because there's now a legal case before me, I have to choose my words carefully. I do note people like KKRR and Minerva Sword and others that are trying to goat me into speaking about things 
And of course, because the UWP officially has Cambridge Analytica people, they are trying to take things and put them out of context. So I have tried to litigate this or to make it make sense to people in ways that allow it to be spoken about and also at the same time do not compromise the case that is going to be prosecuted um, in the courts as soon as the end of next month. Now, I am going to repeat a few things because I really don't like talking about myself, but in this case, I don't really have much choice. Um, I'm going to repeat what I said before, just so that it's understood clearly. Again, I'll try, even though they can try to spin it however they want. Folks, I promoted an event as a promoter that does not make me an organizer. A promoter, for example, let's take Scaddy and Franny on Blazing, can turn and promote an event where Movado is supposed to come on, or the Jazz Festival, or Soka Monarch. If they then go to the event and they are at Boseju Cricket Grounds, Marsha Grounds, or Pigeon Island, or wherever it is that the event is being held, and somebody falls off the stage, or Sometimes somebody gets sick, or somebody bursts a bottle on somebody's head, or somebody gets electrocuted, God forbid. The promoter cannot be liable, because the person is a promoter. The difference is, there is an organizer. The organizer is the person who signs for the documents. For the UWP hacks who are even doing events management and are in whole events management companies who are pretending to be dumb or dumbing themselves down in order to tow the Chastney line. If you do events management, and I have had to do them both privately together with Libo when we did Tempest and other stuff like that, but also I've had to do it when we've been doing things like Independence and Asus Square. Somebody has to sign for the public liability insurance in case anybody gets injured. Somebody has to sign for the for permission from the police and the traffic management plan. An ambulance, um, emergency services, your private security. If you were going to have different personnel, what passes you need? What permissions do you need? Do you have fire extinguishers? All of these things. And I've said this before. This is nothing new. Now, if I... I'm known to people and I'm a public figure, which I think by now should be readily established. I arrive at a venue early and I am talking to a DJ who I know, but I did not even know was the person that had been recruited by the organizer to come in. And then I am summoned by the police. I am duty bound. If the police call you, you are duty bound to go and listen to what it is they have to tell you. I am summoned, I listen. After that, I ask a question, which is very simple. Um, are we, because myself and the DJ, are we allowed to go on the PA system to announce to people what you have told us? They say no. So since they say no, I turn around. And the people who are all around me, I don't care who's filming, are all around me asking me what are the police saying? I'm telling them what I'm telling you, which I've always said. In the beginning, the police said, we can go ahead. We just have to do our thing in smart. In other words, once you get out of town, you get an assembly point, then people can go ahead. 
That is them telling a promoter what information that you can disseminate. And so said, so done. Now the UWP operatives and hacks can try to put the cart before the horse just like they put Shastney ahead of Stevenson King. The fact of the matter is the chronology is there. Now, I say all of that again, and I cannot speak too, too much because this is a legal matter now before the courts. But I never said that I never met or saw Richard Frederick. What I said was Richard Frederick, and he said it, and he has repeated it, that he was the one who sought permission, making him the organizer. He was the one that the ACP or the assistant commissioner, police or deputy, vice, whatever you want to call it, he was the one who spoke with him ultimately. I met him earlier along with Frages and others that were there, and they also called on the DJ, Joe Knows. After that, when Richard started speaking, I was around. But by then, the whole thing was that the whole thing was off. So what did I do? I went and started interviewing people. I don't think of myself as a journalist, but if you call going and interviewing people being a journalist, then I guess that's it. If you call getting footage for this show being a journalist, then I am. So in doing that, while I was doing that, which is what I have continued to say, whatever else that was said when um, the, the commissioner, assistant commissioner of police and so on went off with Richard and if Richard spoke out again or whatever, I wasn't there. I wasn't within earshot. I was by the market filming people. Then somebody came to me and told me, boy, I think they're arresting Richard. So I then caught up. Once I caught up, in all of the confusion, I saw what everybody else saw. Uh, something organic, um, mobilized by itself, and I went to cover it. Now, for those who don't believe it, I realize they will never believe it because it doesn't suit the narrative that they want. When I hear people telling me about police warning me, and uh, no, that's okay, that's okay. The courts will decide all of those lies and distinguish them from the truth. That said... I want you to take a look. Those who will say I edit or I narrate or whatever for my own bias, that's up to you. But I will also tell you that 90% of what you're going to see is from, and I'd like to thank him, even though I hadn't told him that I've taken it, GVD TV, who's owned by Vitus Peter, who got his license under Dominic Fede and the United Workers' Party and has covered all of the United Workers' Party events from before elections all the way through to now. So this is not even from a quote-unquote labor hack. This is a reputable TV station. I think it's channel 115. I'm giving them a plug even. And three quarters of what you're going to see, at least half to three quarters of the footage is from him. And if you go on the GVD website or page right now, it's still there. <laughs>
Non-applications of this app, of this part, okay? Yes, yes, yes. we should understand. If it's not approved, That's what the public order app says. He makes no reason for that. And the only basis for it not being approved because of the COVID. It's not something that we are going to do. That's what the police will do. Can you copy of it, my dear? Yes, please. I can send you a soft copy of it now. Thank you. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Enthusiastically pressed Assistant Commissioner of Police Wayne Shallery on that same matter. I was trying to show you that right now you said that you do not, you have not seen where Prime Minister Shastri was in Polio. No, no, no. I have it here on my phone, hold on, hold on. so I could show it to you. I have, I have only your hair on my hold phone, on, so I can show on. it to you. My words were okay. 
resilient folks they were resilient um in fact mr shari asked me to leave the area and when i leave the area the people might just and so folks i agreed to live with him in further compliance of the several directives he had given me before that i addressed the people now some of those fools i will play a clip it's just about a minute i will play a clip where you will hear me asking the people to go home where you will see Christopher Hunt in the immediate vicinity as I address the people. Okay? And what you all don't even know, that before I got there, I saw another clip, but obviously the matter is before the court now. Where the police had asked Christopher, had asked Jono, sorry, to lower the music, and when you all get out, you could bring up, pump up the volume. So implicitly, as though permission had already been granted. But when I spoke to Mr. Shalry, he said no, um, uh, permission was required and it was not granted. This is what I said to the people, folks. Show them what I said to the people. They have not granted Folks, 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 folks. Chris was right there. He was next to me. We were together. It was right there. I said, look, the police did not grant us permission. I said so. Yet, hacks one persons to believe. I knew in advance that I threw the people under the bus. You know, y'all hacks behave yourselves. Behave yourselves because there's always evidence to refute your assertions once they are not realistic. Yeah, but Shazam's all old, you know. The old Delta, they all lap with the ancillary. You foolish your plane, dominoes. Why can't you say the master thing? Then Lucia alone and things gonna happen now, sir. I'm not supporting that. The days of slavery has gone, but it's time we stand. If we don't stand, Shazam will do what you want to us and no, that can't happen. We walk in that street. What can prevent us from walking that street?
So let's move on and Revolution Sunday is what it, it is what it was and the truth is the genuine nature of it, the organic nature of it has literally triggered a massive response from the United Workers Party government. What do I mean? They have brought in all hands in order to make sure to turn this tide of anti-government, anti-Shastney, anti-Bradley, anti-Stevenson King, anti-Sarah anti-guy, anti-Herod, anti-everyone in between sentiment because the people are frustrated. So that said, folks, we are now going to leave 
Revolution Sunday, and we're going to now deal with what's happening now, the clear and present danger. But first, for that to happen, I need you to understand what has been happening that we did not take notice of. I don't know if you remember, just a few months ago, there was an election in Dominica. And over in Dominica, there seemed to be an, a, suddenly a shocking spate of violence, people burning vehicles, setting fire to things in opposition-held constituencies. And St. Lucia, who doesn't really pay, the average St. Lucia, whether it's a person or a media house, doesn't really pay attention to Dominican politics. We don't follow Grenada, what's happening day to day, even though there's regional news. You know, really, the, the bulk of St. Lucia's population doesn't study Guyana or Trinidad or Barbados so, so much. People who follow politics do, but as a general population, we don't. But I don't know if you noticed it, but there was seemed to be the United Workers Party PR machine seemed to be actively campaigning from St. Lucia for Dominica against the Roosevelt Skerritt administration. It was interesting if you did not know what was happening on the ground here in relation to over there. What was happening on the ground here, whether Timothy Polio or Danley LeBon knew it or not, but they were being used along with others to get the whole of St. Lucia hyped so that they could create a buzz here so that they could help to influence the elections over there. You see, as Chastney being one of the, those that met with Trump, the Lima group, Dominica, if you could flip that seat, flip, flip that country to Lennox Linton, then you would have another anti-Venezuela ally to the United States. The rest of the countries in the Caribbean, like Trinidad and Barbados and so on, respect the sovereignty of not only Venezuela, but also of CARICOM and its heads, so that they stand in solidarity the same way with Cuba, with Venezuela. So there was an American interest supported by tropical Trump here in flipping Dominica over to the UWP in Dominica, which would have been sympathetic towards Trump. What happened, which nobody will tell you, is that before, just about a month before the elections, a lady by the name of Rebecca Mercer came down to St. Lucia with a gentleman named Michael Gabb. I called on Newspin and I welcomed them. And Norbert, the Bofess man, made sure to call immediately after to say, man, the government is bringing consultants. When you bring consultants, and they always try to make Cambridge Analytica, Emma Data as they are known, they always try to make them seem like they're just your regular consultants. But the truth is, folks, Cambridge Analytica actually came out of military-grade warfare, communications warfare techniques. They worked in wars in Darfur. In Iraq was their last main war. And imagine for all the money that was going through people like, um, what's his name, Dick Cheney's hands when it came to Iraq, that even with all the money that is in war, considering America spends more money on its military than the next 17 countries combined, including Russia, the United Kingdom, Germany, and others that they felt it was more profitable to take their mind-bending techniques and to put it into, into politics. So warfare techniques, mind-bending warfare, psychological torture, interrogation, all of these things being used on average citizens for money. Now, this lady came down, some say, and reports have it, that she stayed at the Prime Minister's residence 
Others say she split time. Her jet was parked for about a week. And interest from Dominica came here, took strategy, and maybe more. I won't tip my hand for what I have and what I know I have to make sure that whatever funding that was needed for what was going to happen in Dominica would take place. So let's say it would take $500,000, $200,000 US in order to get enough people to burn the cars or whatever in Dominica. That's what happened. And we did not realize, or, well, there are people like me who realized, but the point is the average person was none the wiser. And why was St. Lucia all of a sudden, our headline is nothing to do with St. Lucia, nothing to do with the economy, nothing to do with tourism. But every day it was Dominica, Dominica for three weeks. And we said it was because of the Al Jazeera documentary that exposed government and opposition people with regard to passports. I'm not even arguing that. Because you have passport scheme. As far as I'm concerned, both sides can be corrupt over there if the mainstay of the economy is passport sales, CIP. But... The point was that everybody in St. Lucia was mind-bent into following Dominica with keen interest. And while whatever efforts Cambridge Analytica was trying to make did not work on Dominicans, ask yourself, if you did follow, how many St. Lucians were absolutely surprised at the convincing victory that Roosevelt Skerritt had in the press? It meant that what techniques may not have worked on Dominicans are still and have still worked on us. So let us now play a huge global game of Connect the Dots. A new era will begin in Washington as President-elect Donald Trump takes office. But long before Trump announced his candidacy, a hedge fund manager named Robert Mercer saw the opportunity for an outsider to win the White House. Now the Mercer family look poised to remain influential Trump insiders. Who are they and what do they want? Wall Street Journal assistant news editor Keech Hagee joins us now to discuss. Hi, Keech. Great to see you here. Good to be so, here. So first off, who are the Mercers? Give us... Robert's story in a nutshell, if you will. So Robert Mercer is a, a numbers guy, a really sort of quiet kind of computer nerd guy who um, got into computer programming early, had a career at IBM, and then uh, went and co-founded Renaissance Technologies, a wildly successful hedge fund that is really data-driven and made a bazillion dollars doing that. Uh, Did he always have a certain political inclination that he made public? Not so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there were friends that said, you know, he, he thought that Bill Clinton was a crook. Right. So, you know, he was, we knew what side of the spectrum he was on, but he's not a very loud guy. You know, he's famous for sitting through meetings without saying a word. So uh, his political activity only sort of emerged around 2010, 11, and really after 2012, um, after those midterm elections, where he and then his daughter, his middle uh, daughter, got um, really involved in conservative causes. Right, in 2011... He bought almost 50% of Breitbart News, correct? Exactly, right. And then he and his wife, Diana, emerged as the third largest GOP donors in the 2016 election. Is that right? We have a right. chart kind yeah. of showing right. how much money they spent. So they sort of came a little bit quietly That's in the true. forefront because they had supported Ted Cruz initially, correct? What's so interesting about them is that they are more interested in shaking up 
Washington and of sort of throwing all the corrupt politicians out on both Republican and Democratic sides than about following one particular person. So they had, you know, funded Ted Cruz super PACs. They were really supporting him. And then as his star kind of began to dim, they just took that whole apparatus that they built and put it behind Trump at the last minute. And it seems they really had a hand in reinvigorating his campaign, didn't they? Yes. One of the, the sort of most amazing things is right at the end, you know, Trump got a new campaign manager and got two, totally new leadership in August. Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon were placed atop Trump's campaign for that final push. Both Mercer confidants. Both Mercer insiders who yeah. are now who now have pretty influential roles in the incoming Trump administration. Right. So this brings us all to the question about what do they want? I mean, does Robert Mercer want to be the ambassador to France? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, absolutely not. People who, who talk to them say, you know, they're not interested in that. When when uh, politicians call their house, they don't drop everything. They're, they just think like, oh, what do they want now? Right. Um, so specifically policy wise, what they want has always been sort of a head scratcher for even people who work closely with them. Um, people say that you know, they want influence. Um, they've been really savvy in kind of going around the typical paths to getting it, you know, not just funding super PACs, not just donating to candidates, investing in media. They've invested in this thing called Cambridge Analytica, which is like a data provider that a lot of campaigns which th- that they funded um, hired. And so now they have all this, you know, rich data at their disposal, which they're very likely to put toward very interesting in the future. but in terms of any policies tax reform education etc they haven't come out publicly and made a push towards any specific no. one policy no they're very no. they're very quiet mm-hmm. um although they are you know very, very conservative mm-hmm. right. so um we know that Re- rebecca mercer pushed for uh jeff sessions for example to be attorney general and did not want mitt romney a more establishment kind of moderate candidate to be the secretary of state so that gives you a flavor they clearly have the ear of the president-elect Absolutely. I mean, Rebecca Mercer is in Trump Tower working out of Steve Bannon's office right. um, when, when she's there and she's on the transition team. And, you know, they're going to be I mean, uh, the president elect gave us a quote uh, pra- praising them. For it, the story. it does seem, them. though, that they want to remain under the radar. They did not want to comment for this article that oh. the journal r- ran. Correct. Absolutely. They're very, very under the radar. You will not see them, you know, giving big speeches. or anything. So I guess like it'll that. be up to the journalists to figure out <laughs> what exactly is going on. All right. Yeah. Keychegi, thank you so much for thank that. You. So the game is afoot. When it was for Dominica, Rebecca, Rebecca Musa, Michael Gab were here, had lunch at the um, Auberge Seraphin restaurant on Monday. I won't give the date. I'll let them say I'm lying and then I'll show you. But that's okay. They're watching now and I'm happy that they're watching because the one thing that we can do to protect ourselves against these mind benders is to make sure that we go out and we educate particularly the young people who will they will attack along with the religious people, which will be their first two lines of attack, right? Just like in the U.S., they go after the young people online, and they go after the churches. They go after the religious community, you see? And right now, as Richard Frederick told you, and we all know, they are headquartered, or they have their war room set up. Three Republicans, right? Note well, Kellyanne Conway works for these people. So she who looks like high ranking, these are the people higher up. Three Republicans. And the UWP has always been affiliated with the Republican Party. So that's Trump, Tropical Trump. There we go. Now you see the link. Two people from Boris Johnson. Remember when Al Landers was taking the pictures during Brexit? As with, together with Boris Johnson. Al Landers who's now uh, the, the U.S. Um, St. Lucia Consulate in New York. Right? He got his promotion. His, he got it good for making sure to do all of the Cambridge Analytica. That's where United Pack comes from. That's all the brainchild of these people. 
Then you have the two, like I said, from the UK, and you have six solutions. Six solutions are all upstairs of, of what you call it, the Republic Bank building. They're all there. I don't know where they stay in, who's staying at Coco Palm and whatever. That's, that's for you all to figure out. But the game is on. Now, for them, it's a game. For us, it's our future. It's our children's future. It's our lives. But for them, it's about tons of people or these super mercenaries getting their six-figure salaries. A person like um, Miss Flynn Rutherford serves the purpose of collecting data on the electorate as much information as they can get, what people think, what people's morals are, where their lines are. She co- all of that information is collected, so it builds a psychological profile of the electorate, both for and against a particular issue, a particular government, governance, whatever. So you have all of that data that is collected over a period of time. And what that information is used for is to help craft a message that will be favorable to her clients, both for those who support or those that are against. So for example, with our current situation and the the persons who chose to go on a drive on Sunday, those persons came out in full force and in full numbers. But if you craft a message that takes away from that message that was sent yesterday, that can be um, receptive to her client, if, if we say her client is the current administration, the UWP seeking support. How do you craft a message? You, what you know about St. Lucians, they know a lot. So they know St. Lucians are God-fearing people, people who obeyed, obeyed the law. So what is the message coming out of? What are you hearing? What is on Facebook? What is being discussed? That people broke the law. People were not supposed to protest. People were supposed to get permission. They did not. There was an arrest. All of that is coming up. All of that is what the conversation is. It has been crafted that way because people will respond to it. Their supporters will respond to it. Those who respect the law will respond to it, even if they agree. Yes, I don't like the parents, but that's not the way to do it. That's the message that is coming out of it. You are hearing nothing that a strong message was sent, that people are not satisfied with the government. That is not the message that is being sent. Today we are talking about the police action. We are talking about people not obeying the law. That's the message that they wanted. That is what she is here for. To craft a message based on what she knows about the people in the country. What will her clients respond to? What will demoralize the other side? What are we hearing about the persons who went on the march? That they were abandoned by the leadership of the party. They leave them by themselves to go. That is the message that they are receiving. So, when you have somebody who understands the electorate to the point where they can even pinpoint persons who can influence other persons and what message these people need to receive so that they can influence others to see things their way, 
especially on Facebook. Because a lot of people, whether they go in and they have that, they are influenced by what happens on Facebook. They can measure that. It is building a psychological profile to tell you what to think and how to think about issues. That is what she's there for. That is what we are dealing with. And that is dangerous. When you have an electorate that is very low information. Low information voters are the ones the majority of that is targeted to. The persons who only get information from one source. And the majority of our readers or people in St. Lucia do not read. What do they depend on? What they see on radio and what they hear on television. They do not read. They do not find out for themselves. So they base the majority of what they think based on what they hear. And that is what they depend on. And it is easier to craft a message. That is the way they are going to tell people what to think. And no matter how much you talk sense, it doesn't matter. They will lie. They will give you the, the... They will lie. They will craft the truth in all kinds of ways to serve their purpose. That is what the analytics tells them. What to tell people so that they can respond. How to craft truth, lie, whatever, so people will respond the way that they want them to respond. You have to have the information and you have to counter those in, you have to counter those attacks. Because no matter what you do, there will be a message out giving putting it in the best interest of their client, the UWP. So right now, a country is broke, cannot pay civil servants, cannot help the poor, cannot give stimulus to businesses. But the party machinery can find millions of dollars to bring in these people so that they can bend your mind and tell you that you are not hungry, that your business is fine, that the government is doing great. So, for example, they come in and tell you, you're ungrateful. Look at how well we did with the COVID response. And then you beat them back. And then you said, nobody said that y'all did not deal with the health part of it. But we should also be able to establish and ask questions like, is the CMO becoming politicized? Is what she did there allowing a lady to come in who is resident in Florida, United States, where cases are still growing, when it just had however many 600 and something new cases yesterday? How did that happen? Is this lady in quarantine right now? Is she at Starfish in quarantine? Or is it because she's a Republican, she's white, she's whatever? Does that make her immune because she's affiliated with Trump? I mean, think about that. Think about it. What is happening? Why is this lady so important? And why are these people so important that they can break the no-fly, no-flights-coming-in regulations to let them in? What is happening, St. Lucia? Why is this more of a priority than getting food to the poor, medication to the elderly, reopening the country in a structured way, helping restaurants, small businesses, school children get back to school, minibus drivers, fishermen, farmers, and everybody in between? Why is this a priority? Why? People are suffering and they have to be convinced that they're not suffering. So you hear words like sacrifice. You're not sacrificing for the good of the country. And when you hear people like Russell or Timothy and Kanisha, Champagne and Jukwa, they're not on the level for them to know. They're just taking information because they're already foot soldiers. They're willing minions. 
You know, Russell know his brother is in fresh start. He know what he getting from tourism authority when he has his rooftop events. So he getting it good. So he just towed a line, right? Timothy, no radio station. You know, old man shots by radio station. And whenever he's ready to step up, that he's good. His body press. Champagne is taxi driver. I mean, a, a red cap. Look at Champagne. Champagne is like a, a minister. So again, it good. These people have been co-opted. They're not asking questions. Just tell me what to say and I'll say it. Water parking, Bosher to come. Airport. And we, we're, doing, we're stimulating construction, the same construction that you kill. And folks, if you don't believe that this is happening, it already happened to us. Chastney never took the time in all his years, 50-something years old, grew up, being in Soufre, being in Castries, in a time when Mate was born and raised, where 90% of solutions were speaking Patois. Refused, do not understand anything. I don't speak fluent Patois, but I understand and I can say whatever I need to say at the time. But the point is, knows nothing. Not because of just, uh, oh, he wasn't here. He was here. He was here. But the value system... But he learnt, Mamai Flambeau, Mwefache, and Yopeh. Don't believe me. This is where the evidence comes in. That makes St. Lucia great again. We were the guinea pigs for Trump, and then Trump came with Make America Great Again. You don't believe me? It was said up at Cicero before it was said by Trump. You don't believe me? Sounds like all global conspiracy theory, except that it's not. In order to understand their individual fears. So when they expose Cambridge Analytica, and Cambridge Analytica says, who paid who for what? Prime Minister Alan Chastney, while acknowledging the international fallout, confirmed SEL's involvement. Our party previously used SEL, which is a political firm. Cambridge Analytica. Kenny Anthony made St. Lucia safer. He didn't, but we will. He didn't, but I will. If the United Lucas Party was in office right now, believe me, we'll be calling on the authorities with the same zeal, with the same urgency, consistency to ask them to address those issues that we are experiencing because we do not believe in excuses we do not believe in people saying you know it's our business all of us you know must ensure that we coalesce to fight crime there is need for us to unite around that particular issue the crime problem that we are experiencing in Senusha whether you are a supporter of the SLP or the UWP you need to take a stand against this malady this problem that is certainly taking its toll on us 27 homicides so far for 2017. Cambridge Analytica will try to pick at whatever mental weakness or vulnerability that we think you have and try to warp your perception of what's real around you. The economy is doing extremely well. The economy is doing extremely well. Yes, we have to understand where we are now. We have a lot of pressure on our, on our cash flow. The constraint on these re, on, re, on these um, re increased revenues is is, is 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 our expenditures. And one of the economy is doing extremely well. The economy is doing extremely well. There was two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negro, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food. But he left. <laughs> they lived in the attic or the basement 
But still they live near their master. And they love their master more than the master loved himself. Robots and a computer can never take care of a horse. It's only people that can take care of horses. And I know of the love and the passion that the people in the South have. And I know how great they are going to be at taking care of horses. A massa mentality. Yeah, you can be like, you know, a colonial master in a country. You know, sorry, not to sound flippant about it, but it, 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 it is, it felt very much like a privatized colonizing operation. Say it with pride, the pearl of the Caribbean. That when people say I am from Viewfort, soon people will not know Viewfort. You are from the pearl of the Caribbean. Where you want to be from, a ghetto, or you want to be from the pearl of the Caribbean? It's plantocracy economics. Because that never occurred to the people who write those rules that the niggas are going to behave like that. They didn't anticipate that such niggas in the house. This is a story involving Facebook and a company called Cambridge Analytica, which I know sounds like a Harry Potter spell that does your homework, but it's actually a data analytics company dedicated to one thing, figuring out how to manipulate you at all costs. Beginning in 2014, many Facebook users were paid to take a personality test funded by Cambridge Analytica, agreeing to give up some personal data. But what they didn't know at the same time, the company was scooping up all of their friends' private information, too. So a survey that started with about 270,000 people ultimately collected more than 50 million profiles. All right, I'm sorry, but that's some bullshit. All right, because your friend took this dumbass quiz, this company you've never heard of got access to your account? Has Kenny Anthony made St. Lucia safer? He didn't, but we will. He didn't, but I will. Now... Now, you, you might be saying, what do I care if Cambridge Analytica got my Facebook data? Like, I don't mind that people know that I like Ben Affleck's back tattoo. I think it brings out his eyes. But the truth is, the truth is, in the wrong hands, our data can be used to do some pretty sinister things. The level of what can be predicted about you based on what you like on Facebook is higher than that your wife would say about you, what your parents or friends can say about you. Cambridge Analytica will try to pick at whatever mental weakness or vulnerability that we think you have and try to warp your perception of what's real around you. Sure, some people might say this is just like advertising. It sounds just like advertising, right? They try to get you to buy something by tugging at your emotions. But this is 10 levels above that. Because traditional advertisers don't know who you are personally. Like, imagine if Samsung knew from Facebook data that you lost your dad last week. So they put a message on your feed that their new phone could contact your dad on the other side. You would be way more likely to buy that phone. Alan Shastney is Donald Trump. Well, let me tell you something. One thing I know about Donald Trump, he knows how to make a deal. We know that Cambridge Analytica got people's data from Facebook. We know that they figured out how to use this data to manipulate people. What you may not know is who they gave all that power to. The data firm hired by Donald Trump's presidential election campaign used secretly obtained information from tens of millions of unsuspecting Facebook users to directly target potential American voters. The entire operation centered around deception, false grassroots support, and a strategy that seems to border on electronic brainwashing. You see, using Cambridge Analytica's tools, 
Trump's campaign figured out a way to manipulate people, or as they called it, electronic brainwashing. Here's an example. Here's an example of how the Trump campaign used Cambridge Analytica's tools. Cambridge Analytica figured out that the phrase drain the swamp made people angry at career politicians, and this would make them want to vote for Donald Trump. And I'm not making this up. Trump told us this himself. It was a term that was actually given to me. Usually I like to think I'm up myself, but this was given to me. But they had this expression, drain the swamp, and I hated it. I, I thought it was so hokey. I said, that is the hokiest. Give me a break. I'm embarrassed to say it. And I was in Florida with 25,000 people going wild. And I said, and we will drain the swamp. The place went crazy. I couldn't believe it. Where's that shit? Thanks to Cambridge Analytica, Trump knew drain the swamp would drum up anti-establishment votes. People who might have never voted before. Psychographics. That is an understanding of your personality, because it's personality that drives behavior, and behavior that obviously influences how you vote. Alan Shastney is Donald Trump. Well, let me tell you something. One thing I know about Donald Trump, he knows how to make a deal. But Alan Shastney and United Workers Party with this team of men and women, we are committed to the cause of making St. Lucia great again. We are going to make America great again. Playing on instincts and fear and anger are the two most dependable ways of doing that. Fear and anger, fear and anger. Your fâché. Fear and anger, fear and anger, fear and anger. Your fâché. Fear and anger, fear and anger, fear and anger are the two most dependable ways of doing that. Solutions. The truth is what you believe. And you know the song? It is happening again. It will happen again. It's already been happening. The only difference is that we know it now. So we have to guard our minds jealously. We have to make the effort. First of all, all of those who would go to a political rally and you don't see any young people and they tell you... Or town hall meeting. You know, young people don't come to this and they don't follow that. That's Guamun thing. You need to talk to the young people because they're going to get them through Instagram. Sponsored posts is joke. Having Chastney playing dominoes is not an accident. Him being down at Savans Bay now at his father's house now more. And all of a sudden trips in all around the constituency. That's not an accident. That's what they're telling him to do. Pretend to care. Look this morning, you've seen the one where there's an elderly person and he's stand up right by them. Pose, everything. There you go. And the colonial mentality and all of these things come into play. Now folks, if you don't think these things are scripted, I've just shown you. And the psychological tactics are there. They are there. They are going to go after the church. You think Bradley and all of them going to church in Saltibus was just basic campaigning? Yeah, politicians do that on both sides. But with these guys, the sandals, cupcakes for the churches in Deriso and stuff like that, that's not an accident. That makes the people in Deriso sympathetic towards sandals and Chastney and Butch. So when they see Butch getting $24 million um, tax-free, uh, you know, withholding tax waiver, they don't get vexed. Ubaldus can be seen as the victim and prayer warriors were coming to help him stop jocking and taking pictures from under his ass. 
Yeah, all of that. While two girls had their, had their records of their recordings of their discussions with the police leaked to him to the point where he could be played for a potential Jabal in Trinidad. You see, the double standard, the double standard is there. That's part of the mind bending. So I am guaranteeing you, it wouldn't take long. If they're going to have elections and call elections in the next month or so, by next week, I guarantee you, you will see them. The churches, they're going after again. All the churches, heavy and hard. You see them on all kinds of programs. I guarantee you. Then, the youth. And that's why I'm telling you, we need each one reach one. So today, as much as it might seem tedious, I'm making sure to give you the weapons of psychological war. You need to know, so that when you see you're hungry... And when you see you starving and a man tell you that he closed down the country uh, because he saw people outside as if people don't have a right to go and look for groceries because you went and alert UWPs. Or when you're distributing groceries along political lines to poor people and people get upset, they're going to tell you that that's not what you should say. For example, the whole thing of racism, they used it the last time. And even though Shastney was the first political leader in St. Lucia's history to ever formally inject race by calling Kenny Massa, all it was was, oh, Shastney is a victim of racism when he himself took to holding a press conference when he called Kenny Massa and talk about Kenny's heritage and all the rest of that. But when you tell them that, you know what they do? They just take their little mumu tablets. Reticence is the order of the day. Now we get into the psychological terms, and I'll give you just two that we need to understand. The first is pluralistic ignorance. In social psychology, pluralistic ignorance is a situation in which a majority of group members privately reject a norm, but incorrectly assume that most others accept it, and therefore go along with it. This is also described as no one believes, but everyone thinks that everyone believes. In short, Pluralistic ignorance is a bias about a social group, held by that social group. Pluralistic ignorance may help to explain the bystander effect. If no one acts, onlookers may believe others believe action is incorrect, and may therefore themselves refrain from acting. Pluralistic ignorance can lead groups to persist in policies and practices that have lost widespread support. This can lead college students to persist in heavy drinking, corporations to persist in failing strategies, and governments to persist in unpopular foreign policies. At the same time, it can prevent groups from taking actions that would be beneficial in the long run, actions to intervene in an emergency. In pluralistic ignorance, people privately disdain but publicly support a norm or a belief, while the false consensus effect causes people to wrongly assume that most people think like they do, while a so, <laughs> what, what I read for you was a sequence of randomly generated words. <laughs> it's taken from a, an engine that is supposed to generate postmodern literature. Uh, and I, I embedded a few words of, about capitalism and Adam Smith and... Uh, in it, and what I want you to reflect for a second is the question of why didn't you stop me? I kept on reading this nonsense for a while. Uh, you, you must have realized that you had no idea what was uh, discussed, but none of you stopped me, 
Right? And the question is why? And what, what I would suggest that this is a, a part of a behavior we call pluralistic ignorance. So think to yourself, you were sitting there, and you were saying, I have no idea what this is about, but you were looking at the people around you, and nobody of them were raising their hands. So you probably said to yourself, I must be the only person who doesn't catch it yet, and maybe later on I will catch it, but for now, I have no idea what's going on. Now, what we find is that pluralistic ignorance is especially powerful in big classes, which this is one of them. Imagine you were in my office, and you asked me something about to define behavioral economics, and I went into reading this. How many of you would stop me very quickly? Probably all of you. You would not let me go through two or three sentences without stopping me. But somehow, because there are so many people around us, our tendency is not to ask questions. So pluralistic ignorance in our context. I'm not calling anybody ignorant. It talks a scientific psychological term that addresses things that happen to all of us. I'll give you an example. Shastri is in Olio with no personal protection equipment in the middle of a state of emergency campaigning while people are suffering around the country. Pluralistic ignorance. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows something is wrong. Did you hear the Chamber of Commerce come out and speak about that? Did you hear a chief medical officer come out and speak about that? Did you hear the police come out and speak about that? Think about it. And then people tell you, well, he was, he was surveying the constituencies. You see? Pluralistic ignorance. We all know the problem, but nobody wants to speak out at the time. So, take for example... All of the economic blunders that he has gone through. All of the favoritism. All of the nepotism. All of the corruption. We all see it. But when Cuthbert may mention it, or Richard Peterkin may mention it, or Christopher Hunt may mention it, or Richard Frederick may mention it, or Claudius Francis may mention it, then we just talk shows. Them that, or they give you a look at nice one. Chagwe pouvoir. Or they tell you, them people just play in politics. Politicians convincing you that if you say something that you've been political to the point where you're browbeaten into cowering and not saying anything. Pluralistic ignorance. People having a right that the Prime Minister demonstrated on his own when he went around the country earlier in the middle of a state of emergency. And instead of that focusing on the legality of the protest as opposed to the fact that people came from all walks of life and showed their displeasure with the government. But pluralistic ignorance was broken there. And one of the things that the COVID virus has caused is that it's scientifically proven that when you are complacent, your mind can be bent much easier. But when you are in abject situations, a hurricane, something traumatic like abject poverty in a government that doesn't give stimulus, when you are feeling it, who feels it knows it. And now they are going to try to tell you that what you are seeing, what you are feeling, what you know, is not the truth. So the next term, that this lady who just came down here, Miss Donalyn, whatever, she is a master at, she has her publications at, is cognitive dissonance. 
chances are good that you've heard of something called cognitive dissonance. It's a term that's starting to get thrown around a lot these days. But you might not know that it has a really deep root in classic social psychology. In 1957, Leon Festinger wrote a book on the theory of cognitive dissonance and outlined a really detailed understanding of what cognitive dissonance is and how people deal with it. Let's start out by talking about what cognitive dissonance is. How would we define it? At the very basics, cognitive dissonance is about inconsistency. When we hold two thoughts that are inconsistent with one another, basically, that's dissonance. So let's take the example of someone who smokes cigarettes. Here's a person who might have two distinct thoughts, one of which is, I regularly smoke cigarettes the other of which is the knowledge that smoking cigarettes is unhealthy. Here are two thoughts that a person can be having at the same time, acknowledging both of these things as fact, but they would seem inconsistent with one another. If you know that smoking is bad, then logically you probably wouldn't be engaging in that activity yourself. And so this is a case of dissonance because there's inconsistency in your own thoughts. So what do people do when they experience cognitive dissonance? Well, there are a few ways in which Festinger said that you could resolve the inconsistency as a way of resolving the dissonance. First, you can change one of those thoughts. So in the case of the smoker who realizes that smoking is bad and also that he is a regular smoker, he might change one of those beliefs and go... Ah, smoking's not that bad. It's actually not unhealthy to smoke. That would be changing one of your cognitions, one of your thoughts, as a way of restoring consistency. Another thing you could do is change your behavior as a way to restore consistency. So in this case, the smoker might say, well, I, you know, if I acknowledge that smoking is bad, then the way I can be consistent is to stop smoking. So changing one of the behaviors that's related to the inconsistency. Another thing people can do is to add new thoughts into the mix. Thoughts that help rationalize the inconsistency. So someone might say, you know, yes, smoking is bad. Yes, I smoke regularly. But also, I do a lot of other healthy behaviors. I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, and I exercise a lot. So I'm adding new thoughts as a way to reduce the problem of inconsistency. And finally, people can just trivialize the inconsistency completely. They can just say, you know what? Sure, smoking's bad, and I smoke, but I just don't care. And that's going to be it. That's not really as big of a deal as people say that it is. That would be another way of resolving dissonance. Man, that's tobacco. But why do people feel like they need to resolve anything at all? What's the big deal about dissonance? Well, some people say that dissonance just gets in the way of finding some sense of truth. In general, if we want to understand the world, then we want a clear, consistent picture of it. And when anything that makes us feel inconsistency is something that's a problem, and we're motivated to restore consistency again. But most of the research in dissonance has looked at something a little bit different. And that idea is that it's physically uncomfortable to experience cognitive dissonance. There's actually some negative physical tension that you feel anytime you recognize two inconsistent thoughts or realize that you've done something through your behavior that contradicts your true attitudes and beliefs. 
So let's put all of that psychology that these Republicans have been brought in here together with the British Conservative Party and the St. Lucian house slaves that are there right now being trained to mind-bend St. Lucians. Let's put it into context in general and then we'll put it into context in terms of politics. Cognitive dissonance is your discomfort with an uncomfortable truth. And the fact that people would actually psychologically prefer comforting lies... Like, for example, that Shastin is a good prime minister than the unpleasant truth that they have basically endorsed a deck deck. Now, let me give you an example. When Peter Josie says just a couple of days ago that Philip Pierre is honest, probably the most honest politician that he knows, but he doesn't think that people would vote for him. What he is telling you is that honesty right, is uncomfortable, so go with Chastney, who is like, tr- like Trump, tropical Trump, is a compulsive bullshitter, but you like the pleasant lies, oh, we're going to build this, and we're going to get 1.5 billion, and we're going to grow the economy by 14%, and da 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 all of the glug glug, that we like that, that we won't take, you know, it's like the, the guy or the woman that likes the flashy person, as opposed to the person who is there for them. So let's go to cognitive dissonance and break it down in ways people understand. St. Lucia, we drink alcohol like other countries, a rum culture. You heard Fede, we're a rum drinking people and all the rest of that. But think about how, for example, rum has been promoted. And now we make songs about rum more than we make songs about women or love or sex or jumping carnival or wine on the backside. It's about drinking. And because of our discomfort with alcoholism in the country, we have, instead, to make ourselves feel comfortable, glorified rum. If I, and I have a daughter, were to see somebody tell me, Boy Hunt, there are pictures of your daughter there in a blues, in a pond, she's on a video there, and she's in a whatever. When that video comes, I naturally will not want to believe it. I'll say it's Photoshop. Just like when they were saying, oh, Yuballah's wife say he have a mole on his thing. That's not it. And remember Yuballah saying, he was laughing. He said, minister, I told him that was not you. <laughs> when it was. That's the point. So, because it would be painful for me to believe something. I'll give you another touchy one. I am not an atheist. But let's say I were to go and try to convince a Christian that there is no God. We could have a logical argument and very quickly it would break down and that person would just say, you see you, believe what you believe, I believe in God. Because it's painful to even consider for somebody who is a devout Christian that there is no God. Give you another one. Stevenson King, but I like Stevenson King, he's a nice man, he's a nice man. If you find out that he's been giving contracts and collecting money on the side, because you like him, you know, you'll kind of let that pass. You know, if you find out that there's a minister involved in a kidnapping, because, you know, he buys you some bears, you'll kind of let that pass, because it makes you feel more comfortable. I know of one person that I spoke to when I was explaining to them about somebody in politics who's a pedophile, and I gave him the evidence and I told him the person, right, who, the person whose daughter he went after, the 12 year old, I told him, this is the guy, this is his number, call him. He can send, show you the text messages of this politician and how he was trying to roll on the man's 12 year old daughter. After two or three weeks, I checked him back. I asked him, why don't you go? Why don't you, have you not checked it out? He said he didn't bother again. 
But you know what? That's that um that politician, he's always in the church every Friday, so I let it go. That is the power of cognitive dissonance. So that it could be as simple as you being raised in a family where you have a restaurant or you part of KFC and you frying chicken, and people are telling you that the cholesterol and everything is killing people and giving people heart attacks. But you can't take that because at the end of the day it makes you feel uncomfortable. Well, because right now there are UWPs who feel uncomfortable with Shastney. This lady's job is first to make all those who are uncomfortable, who voted for Shastney, feel comfortable with him again. To tell you things like, oh, he wasn't incompetent, greedy, or corrupt. That instead, he was giving you tough love. So for example, how many St. Lucian house slaves that believe that it is not that he should be giving um, what do you call it? Giving stimulus to people like all the other countries. But we're too lazy guys. Are we supposed to work for our money? But how can you work for your money when your restaurant is closed down by a state of emergency? How can you work for your money when your computer shop is closed down? But the psychology is what is at play here. When you point out that a man should not be in any way, shape or form talking about colonialism having a conscience... And instead, people want to paint you as racist because you are even considering that. You're just fighting down the man because he's white. Kenny Anthony is white. My grandmother is white. My mother's half white. My daughter's half white. But that's me. You see, the psychology at play. And this is just the beginning. Like the Avengers, this is the end game. Now, folks, I know this is the second time I've gone way over time. I started a little bit late. And I won't be able to take calls. But this now is literally psychological warfare. This means that this weekend you need to engage with your children. Young people, you need to engage with the elders. The generations need to connect. This means that people in the churches who will be under psychological attack from this government, and I'll show you more evidence next week, because they're not going to hide it too, too well, but they're going to go out there and do that. They're going to try to divide us, People like me, oh, they search in my phone, they tap in my phone, um, the police have the ability, they can tap my phone, whoever's going to think that. Sometimes they open up and let United Pack fellas go and sit in the containers and go on the, what's the six computers and just go. And you know there are magistrates and so on willing to sign whatever so that people like me can find myself sleeping in custody. I am not it. We are all it. We are all the targets. We are all the targets. And don't believe for one second that these people care more about anything than getting their big money. And going back to the States, helping Trump to win his election and living happily ever after while you stay here in squalor with your Tebebe Prime Minister and the FFF crew and Guy Joseph and all of them continuing. Folks, we have to protect ourselves. And anybody who thinks I'm being hyperbolic, just go and Google. Go on YouTube. Check out Emma Data. Check out these people. I've given you the names. Rebecca Mercer. I've given you Michael Gab. You have this lady, Lynn, whatever the name is, right? You get it. Check it out. Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Do not take my word for it. Take your own instincts. Trust them and protect them. Folks, I hope you have a great weekend. I want to say for all of those who have been at me for the Revolution t-shirts, Tomorrow, because of the demand and my inability to be omnipotent and be in all different places at the same time, I'm going to start off by going from 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. I'm going to be in Rodney Bay, in between the two malls, JQ and Baywalk. 
And I will simply park and open my trunk. I have 300 t-shirts that I'm going to sell. It's $20 um, for anybody. And yes, this is not only the legal defense fund, but this is part of the revolution as well. Right, So nobody can say, I'm on the bubble list for me to get money or direct award like Fresh Start or anybody like that. And we will continue to do what needs to be done organically. So tomorrow, 10 a.m., anybody that wants to get, whether it's to ship overseas and so on. And as of next week, I'll be announcing where we, the locations that we'll have in Castries, Denry, Anstere, Soufre, and so on. Viewfort everywhere in between. And the people will be distributing. And if you want to tell me anything, remember my number is 519-1818. And that includes y'all that's sitting down in Rodney Bay there now, y'all Cambridge Analytica people. Call me, because the question that y'all need to ask yourself is, whether what y'all doing, I know that you're obsessed with knowing whether you could do it. The question is, should you do it? And I know y'all have no conscience when it comes to these things. If y'all can elect Trump, then tropical Trump, I mean, that goes without saying. And to do it again, that goes without saying. But there are patriots in this country. There are people who can see beyond red and yellow. And they can see the land and the people and the light. And as long as there's one of us in St. Lucia, two of us or three of us, we will fight. We will fight. I leave you now. Have a good weekend. And I hope everybody... Is back on Monday, and I hope I'm back on Monday as well because I can no longer bank on being able to get to work if I am picked up. A scientist placed four monkeys in a room with a stepladder upon which there was a bunch of bananas. Whenever a monkey went to climb the ladder, the other monkeys in the room were sprayed with cold water. After a while, each time a monkey went for the bananas, the others would attack it to prevent it from doing so. The monkeys learnt to never climb the ladder. But then, one of the monkeys was removed, and a new monkey wearing a raincoat was introduced. Naturally, this monkey went for the bananas, and it was customarily attacked and prevented from doing so by the others. This new monkey learnt not to climb the ladder. So when another monkey was substituted in and made for the bananas, all the others attacked it, including the one in the raincoat, despite the fact that it had never been sprayed with cold water. A third monkey was substituted in, and then a fourth final monkey. And still, whenever a monkey tried to climb the ladder, the others would prevent it from doing so, even though none of them had ever been sprayed with the cold water. When asked why this was, one monkey said, That's just the way it is. The opinions expressed on this TV program by the hosts, co-hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions and responsibility of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of UTV or its affiliates.